You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I am Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for November 2nd, episode 3298, Good Morning Horse World. Welcome back, Mary! Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been a busy girl since we chatted last. How many different uh, road tr- uh, horse shows, clinics, affairs? How, where have you been? It's busy. Yeah, it's been insane. Um, so I uh, started out in Oregon, flew out there. I've been going out there for um, clinics the last couple years, uh, twice a year and got more in the works for next year, which I'm really excited. And, um, that is put on by one of our auditors, um, Danny. Oh gosh. I don't know her last name cause it's different than it is on Facebook. I think it's Russell. Um, <laughs> I'm really bad at names. Um, so <laughs> she puts on a clinic just outside of Portland. Um, and, had a really good time there. A few auditors actually participate in that. And so I was there for several days and then I flew home. And then the next day I hooked up my trailer and went to the uh, Stock Horse of Texas World Show over in Abilene, Texas. Um, it's a Texas association, yet we have a world show, so I assume other states and countries are allowed. But it's <laughs> There's, that's the thing Texas about the Western people. community; they love a world show. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and I get my little grammatical pedantic self gets hung up when people call it world's show. That's really common. They'll say, "Oh, I was at world's." <laughs> yeah. Like. Is Mars competing? I didn't know they had a quarter horse association. Um, that's me being a jerk. But <laughs> yes, we have a world show. Um, but I think the most exotic places people come from to show is like New Mexico, um, <laughs> which is next door. Well, depending on who you ask, that could be another world, New Mexico. It pretty much is. It, it, anything that's not Texas might as well be a whole other world. <laughs> Gosh. Now, what were you, tell us about that. What, what divisions, classes were you competing in at the world singular show? So I, it's it's a really cool um, event and there's a lot of other very similar associations springing up all over Texas and all over the country. It's uh, based on ranch horse style events. So there are four different classes that you compete in and you compete you can compete individually or you can do all four at once and try and go for all around titles. And the classes are reining, uh, ranch trail. So it's like a trail class, but super ranchy, uh, ranch pleasure, uh, which is a rail class where you're showing your different gates and cow work, uh, which is not my best class, but we do it because we're trying to get in the all around. 
And uh, Remy and I are usually the only Mustang duo competing. It's mostly quarter horses, stock type horses, but all breeds are welcome. Um, and the association, the people are wonderful. They're very welcoming, very, very nice. Uh, so we've been showing um, about every month, all year in these events, trying to get points for the year-end titles. And the world shows kind of the culmination in that. Um, so that's what we did. And they did two rounds of all four of these classes. Uh, so, so you had to do a total of eight classes. I did. Wow. That's a lot. It was insane. And I'm still, I'm still recovering from it. (laughs) My mom went with me and she goes, this is fun. I'm like, yes, yes. Getting up at three in the morning to ride is my passion. Um, (laughs) because there's so many entries, there are no arenas open during the show. Like there's one tiny little warm up arena where everyone's in there loping in one single circle, going the same direction. Uh, I call it the horse tornado. Um, so I get up, I get up in the middle of the night to go ride, um, which is, which is pretty common. Um, so I haven't slept in like two weeks. <laughs> You're so dedicated. Oh my gosh. My days of doing that are so over. <laughs> I did question my life choices several times during this show. So but it was fun. Do are the majority of the shows you go to multi-day in that you pack it all up there and you stay there for several days, or do you do a fair number of one day shows? Um, so I haven't done the smaller one day shows, um, recently, uh, because I've been involved with the stock horse of Texas and because they usually have at least one show a month, that's what I've been doing, which is a multi-day affair. So, um, I usually haul in it on Wednesday and sometimes I can stay as long as till Sunday. Um, but lately they've pushed all of my division's classes closer together. So I'm not having to be gone that whole half of a week. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. So I want to quiz you a little bit because Glenn and I have, are taking Nigel and Scooter up to over two acres to camp on the weekends because we have this cute little piece of ground and we can't build a house there yet. So we just take the horses camping there a lot. So we're going away from home with the horses for shorter periods of time, three Two to three days usually, more often now. How much of your consumables do you drag along, and how much do you get when you arrive at your destination? As far as like hay and stuff. Yes, your horses' consumables. Yes. So I usually calculate one bale for every two days, which is usually a little bit more than I need. Um, so like for this show where I left on Tuesday and was back on Sunday, I brought three bales of hay and, uh, with the grain, I'll usually scoop into a tub. Like I'm feeding them like one scoop morning, one scoop night. And then I'll throw in a few extra scoops, uh, just for good measure. And luckily wherever I'm showing you usually has. Uh, like a TSC or feed stores, just in case I've forgotten mm-hmm. something. Um, but yep, that's usually what I bring for the 
the hay and the grain and then two buckets for the water. And then I usually pack a couple of gas cans full of water on the off chance that I break down on the side of the road and I'm stranded for hours. I have water on me that I can give my horse, especially if it's in the summertime. So you bring along your own hay versus purchasing hay when you get to your destination. Yes, if I can help it. Um, lately, I've been using the bagged hay that is at TSC. So that's not as big a deal if I need to purchase more of that on the road. However, you know, I ha- as far as um, regular grass hay, I have heard horror stories of uh, trainers who were on the road and they bought local hay and it had a toxic weed in it and made all their horses sick. You know, so that could probably happen at, you know, to anyone at any feed store, but I feel more comfortable bringing my hay from home if it's not that TSC bagged hay. Yeah. And it's tough because it's been my experience that the TSCs that carry hay, now I'm in Florida, you're in Texas, could be completely different, when they tend to run out. So they're supposed to stock hay X, Y, or Z, and you go in there, oh, no, we don't have any. So if you're counting on that for your only hay supply and there's only one TSC or other national chain, insert national chain of your choice, and there's only one national chain that carries it, you could be SOL. So I also use a lot of the bagged hay that you can find at national retailers. Um, I tend to, if I'm going to count on that as my main source of hay, I make sure there's more than one convenient location to get it on the off chance that one of those is out. Uh, I have gotten stuck by that um, in the past in that, oh, I can just pick it up at store X, which is 20 minutes away. Well, I went to store X 20 minutes away and store X said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any left. (laughs) You know, so yeah, I get that. But carrying hay to travel with your horses, I find my most challenging part. Unfortunately for us, my horse takes up two spaces in our three-horse trailer, and the pony takes up the third space as well as the tack room because the pony is only 12 hands high and the horse trailer is 18 inches high. So he can't back out of it. <laughs> he has to turn around and jump out. Because it's well <laughs> it is, it's well past his knees. <laughs> so he can't just back out of that thing. So we can use neither our spare stall nor our uh, collapsible tack room when we travel with our horses. Everything has to mash into the bed of the truck. And as you know, when you have a gooseneck trailer, there's not a lot of space there. <laughs> Unless you have a flatbed, which is amazing. Oh, you just not fair. So when you when you I put stuff, do, does your flatbed have like little, little sides that you can take on and off or you just tie everything down? How's that work? No sides. I strap everything down. My my flatbed has these adorable little hooks in it <laughs> that I can uh, use toast uh, uh, packing straps or whatever um, whatever you call those suckers. I know the name for them, but I strap it down. Um, and yeah, flatbed's amazing. It's so much easier to hook up your trailer, and you can you've got all that extra room. Um, so I will use the flatbed, but I am also blessed with. Uh, a huge tack room in my uh, my little sundowner two horse, so I'm usually able to fit the hay in there okay. Um, especially because I'm I'm usually just hauling one horse around. Um, but 
Yeah, it can be tricky. And then, you know, I've I've had trailers before where you've got that roof rack um, on top of the trailer, but you've got to get the hay up there. And then you have to get the hay down exactly. once you're at your destination. Yes. And yes. I'm a bit terrified of heights. I can climb up, but climbing down is a whole other thing. <laughs> That just that's just more work than I want to have to go through. I also discovered now because I've been using the packaged and it's not packaged hay like you you buy what I call chopped hay in a bag. Um right. Lucerne and Triple Crown make them. That's different than the hay we're talking about. We the hay we're talking about is what's called a compacted bale. They have another name for it and it doesn't occur to me right now. So a 50 pound bale is quite literally half the size of a typical two-string bale, which is in that 50-pound range. So that's nice because it does take up a lot less space, and being wrapped in plastic, I don't have to worry about, you know, minor minor changes in weather. I can just jam them in there. So that's really interesting that you do it that way. Versus, now, when you do your grain, you just put it all, all the meals just go into a bucket or container of some sort versus creating little individual meal packets. Yes. Yeah. I've got a really nice little plastic trash can thing. I think I got it TSC. Um, so I just put it all in there. I pack a scoop. I put all of his, he's got, um, two or three supplements that'll go in the door caddy on, in my horse trailer. And so when I'm at the show, I'll make, I'll mix it all up and make it right there. Um, and, uh, and then I, I always throw it. So I throw in the scoops that I know I'm going to feed him. And then I throw an extra because sometimes he's really good and he deserves second breakfast <laughs> um, because his, his quote unquote grain is actually Timothy pellets. Um, so it's, it doesn't hurt him if he to gets, get extra, if he gets second breakfast, yeah, <laughs> which he has come to demand. Um, every time I finish with a class. I take him to a stall, untack him, and he stands in there in his stall giving me a, the evil eye until I give him a meal because he's like, I, I did it. I did the thing. Um, so <laughs> I love it. He's, he's, he's gotten quite spoiled. Um, I love it. <laughs> he's but he did so good because you, you what finally we're, we're going to circle back around now to the horse show part. When the world singular show wrapped up, you came in what place? So, um, I, so there were two rounds of the horse show in the first round. So we did all four of those classes. Um, he had placed fourth and trail out of 30 people, I think, uh, which is really good. He had a super high score. He, we were like 20th in reigning cause that's not our best class. Um, we were 14th in cow work, which for us is insane, is amazing, because also cow work, not our best class. Uh, he was 8th in pleasure, and then he was ninth all around, which that, for uh, the year, we have never made a top 10 all around. So that was round one. Round two, he was third in trail. There was a tie for first. He was like a half point from winning trail. Um and we got, I think, around the same type of placing in raining. We were 12th in pleasure. Um, our cow work was, we had a little accident um, in the cow work, which I can elaborate on. But uh, overall, so overall between the both of the rounds put together, we did end up uh, as the reserve world champion in the trail class, which 
is huge for us. And I'm so proud of him. Um, we didn't, we were just out of getting, you know, the, the big prizes, uh, like they were giving away Yeti coolers and stuff. We got a patch. Uh, we we well, let, let patch. me do, let me do this. <laughs> this. This is important right now. I'm going to do this. There we go. You probably didn't hear that. Did you? I did not. Yeah. I, I played the applause button for you. Oh, hooray. <laughs> Well, that's great. I know you guys have been putting on the miles all season long to get into that top 10. That's so exciting that you you squeaked into the top 10. Yay! Yes. And, you know, I, I keep having to, like, go back and remind myself, this is a Mustang in with a bunch of quarter horses that are, like, they've been bred for generations to do this. So yes. he's, the fact that he's so competitive, I'm so proud of him. And where we are not as competitive as uh, where both of us are beginners. I consider us, I consider myself to be a beginner in cow work. So that's my goal over the winter is to go and haul and, and ride with people who actually know what they're doing in that class and get some pointers and start making improvements there. Yay! So I'm really excited to do that. Well, I can't wait to hear all about that. Well, we're going to get to our first listener question. We have questions that Mary answers and I chime in on each month that are submitted by listeners who are also auditors. If you want to become an auditor and help support Horse Radio Network and Horse Radio Network hosts like Mary and belong to the super special Facebook group that gets to ask questions, head on over to either horsesinthemorning.com or horseradionetwork.com and look for the auditor banner. It's always located somewhere. Click on that and it explains how you can become an auditor. And right after we hear from our sponsor, Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we're going to do our first question. Some people don't think horses and people communicate. We call those people not horse people. Not horse people don't know you and your horse share a unique bond, or that your horse knows you know they like your dogs. But not so much the barking. At Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we don't knock not horse people. We're too busy focusing on horse people's horses. With extruded nugget feeds for exceptional nutrition and formulas for every need, our wide choice of feeds makes it easy to find the fit for your horse's health. Find theirs at FeedSentinel.com. Uh, so our first question comes from Steph, and it is on the topic of Ranch Horse World. Maybe how do you first introduce a horse to a rope? And at what point do you go under saddle and start swinging, et cetera? Um, so that is a really good question. Um, I will start it during my groundwork. And um, I, I'll i start, use, you know, swinging a, I've got like a 60 foot extra, extra, extra soft branch rope that I use and it's got a Buck Brannaman Hondo on it. So it's a little bit more of an open Hondo and it's supposed to be able to, you're supposed to be able to use it with horses and it has a little bit more give and, and stuff like that. Um, and actually his book, his groundwork book has a very detailed step-by-step -step on all of the rope work that he does on the ground, which I can't recommend enough. Um, so it's got exercises in it that I like to use. Like uh, I'll rope my horse in a round pin and start there and teaching them how to give to the pressure and to draw towards you. And then you can do things with the rope. Like while you've got the rope around their neck, you could flip it to the other side of their hip and teach them to give to that pressure and come around. So they just start feeling that rope all over their body before you have the added risk of being on them. 
Um, and I will put the rope around their barrel and teach them to lead forward with the rope, um, you know, right where the girth would be on the saddle. I'll rope all four feet and teach them to lead with the rope with all four feet and teach them to pick up their feet with the rope. And all of this, if you do this right, it's soft, it's gentle. You're not harming your horse in any way. Um, it does take some feel and timing. So maybe if you're feeling like, oh, I don't want to do that with the lariat, you can all, you can start with long lead ropes and it, you're still kind of simulating that, but you don't have the lariat that's like attached to them. Um, because when you're handling a rope, that rope could go anywhere. Um, it could go under the horse's tail or around the horse's legs. And you just want to get them used to it touching that rope, touching them all over their body first. And even before I actually put the rope around any body part, I'll use the coils of my rope. I do this a lot with Mustangs. I'll have my rope in coils and I'll rub them all over their body with it. So things like that is stuff I will do on the ground, um, before I ride. And, and if I can do that, they're pretty used to seeing a rope swing around them. They're pretty used to it, touching them everywhere. Um, I can even get up on the fence or a mounting block and I can, if I'm not sure how my horse is going to handle a rope swinging around them, I'll stand up on that mounting block in the same position that I would be like if I was riding them and swing the lariat a couple times and throw it out, you know, different angles. So at that point, if they freak out, they might go sideways or backwards or whatever. I'm not on them and having to deal with all of that at the same time. Um, so from there, they're pretty used to that rope seeing it at all different angles and feeling it. So from there, I can usually just start handling my rope from their back, but you know, I can, I can do a lot of swinging the rope and throwing it out and dragging it behind without it being attached to anything. Um, and I'll just progress from there and start, you know, I can start roping a dummy. I can start putting that rope around a very light ground pole and teaching them to drag it from there. But usually if I've done all that groundwork with them, it's never a surprise when I'm up under saddle, um, starting to do that stuff. So that's just kind of an idea of where I start. Very interesting. So for a typical horse, and it's hard, I hate to say typical horse because so few of them are what you might call typical. How often and for how long would you integrate, um, introducing the rope to their training regime? If they were going out and being worked with, let's say four times a week, how often and for how long each time would you do it? I would say the best way to introduce stuff like that and in, in almost any kind of new thing I'm introducing to my horse is I just, I, I kind of like refer to it as I sneak it up on them, which is not the best term, but I, instead of having a day where I'm like, okay, today is rope day and we're going to work on this for an hour. Uh, most of the time I just bring it out and mess with it for five minutes. I usually, if it's something brand new, I I'll usually do it either somewhere in the middle of my groundwork or even at the end. So I've already got them paying attention to me. Maybe they're wanting to feel a little bit more settled and they want to stand still and they're more amenable to just letting new things happen. So, um, that's how I really introduce that stuff is I just grab it out and mess with it for a few minutes. And if they're good, I put it away. And then the next day, get it out, mess with it for a few more minutes. Um, I could start carrying it on my saddle as I ride and every so often just let it down, swing it around, throw it a couple of times. 
And that's the best way to do it is you just introduce it bit by bit, little by little, make it really casual, try to keep it low energy um, so that after a while, your course is like, oh, yeah, this is totally normal that we just do this every day. Um, okay. If your horse has demonstrated or you suspect that it's going to be stressful for them to have these early lessons, you can couch those moments between things that the horse finds easy and enjoyable, as well as things that you find easy and enjoyable. So if your horse really struggles with shoulders in, shoulder in exercises, don't do shoulder ins for 20 minutes and then to go straight to rope work. Because he's already going to be a little bit stressed mentally and it's all a head game, isn't it? Do have something before and after that that he's going, oh, that's easy. I'm great. And then make sure that you offer those um, rest periods mentally and physically. So he finds the sound of the, I found that interesting. And that was not something I realized until I went to some road to the horse competitions because I come from an English universe. Nobody that I know does rope work for any reason. Lassos or lariats. Is it lasso or lariat, by the way? Um, interchangeable. I tend to say lariat more than lasso. All right. We're going to use lariat then. A lariat, the material it's made of, when it's all rolled up in that nice little loop that you see that you see people carry around, when you tap it against something, it makes a clacky noise. Didn't realize that until I witnessed it in person. So let's say your horse finds that little clacky noise a little bit disconcerting. So if you're doing something that has already got him a little bit mentally stressed or keyed up, doing that is not going to help him go, big deal. He's going to go, oh, that happens when I'm worried about other things. So the context of where that happens each time is don't underestimate the importance of context during your training sessions. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think most of the time when we're working our horse, we're going to do something within that ride that is going to challenge the horse. Um, maybe we're advancing a maneuver or we're getting the scary rope out for the first time. Um, or, you know, we're just working on something we know is going to challenge our horse a little bit. The way that I think you can get that information to them the best without, um, you know, either being totally avoidant of all things that are going to be challenging to them or without overpowering them and just making it a stressful situation is you want to start calm, finish calm. So whatever that is, whether it's familiar exercises or rest or rewards or whatever, you know, you come out calm. We're going to do simple exercises. Let's work on just softening to the bridle and, you know, build them up and make them feel safe and calm and make them get in the habit of starting every ride in a good state of mind. And then you'll slowly challenge them a little bit and you want to keep them under threshold. So you don't want to challenge it. You don't, I'm not going to take that rope out there. And if I know that slapping the coils on the saddle scares the dickens out of them, I'm not just going to go in there and flood them with it and say, you need to get over it. Maybe I'll slap the coils on my jeans. And that is enough to make him really go, oh, this is stressing me out. I need to get through this. You know, and I stay there in that zone where he's a little challenged, but he's not over. It's not too much. And then bring it back down. And then I say, okay, I'm going to put the rope away from for now. Let's go back to the doing the things we're familiar with or the things that you find pleasant. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's a very like up and down sort of, uh, you know, thing when I ride is you, you want to start calm, there'll be a little bit of a challenge and then we're going to finish calm. And that usually is the best way to guarantee that they're going to walk out of the stall the next morning in a good state of mind and not all keyed up because of what happened the day before. Woohoo! Pull! Well, yeah. right, as as you many of you know, Radiothon is coming up November 26th, so we're going to take a short break here and enjoy a submission from uh, Tigger and the gang over at Healthy Critters Radio from a previous Radiothon, and it's just an example of the fun and interesting content that you're going to hear on the 26th of November, starting at, let me get my calendar over here, starting at 3 p- three p.m. We're doing audio and video this year, and you can listen and watch the live feed, or you can listen to the recorded version. If you head on over to Horses in the Morning or Horse Radio Network, all of the information will be there. So sit back and enjoy this, and then we will be back with another question. Woohoo! This is the Johnson Family Christmas contribution to the 2017 HRN Radiothon. You've heard Philip and Wendy, sometimes Coach Jen, Debbie and Lena, let's not forget Glenn. But do you recall the most famous show host of all? Hedwig the Pomeranian from the Healthy Critter Show tackles all the tough questions Jamie Jennings doesn't know. All of the hosts adore her, even with a funny name. Hedwig the Pomeranian joins in all the HRN games. Then one frosty Christmas Eve, Glenn came home to see. The host had wrapped his gifts in gold underneath the Christmas tree. Now Hedwig the Pomeranian is on the Healthy Critter Show. She'll answer all those vet questions Jamie Jenny's never knows. All of the hosts adore her as she yips and barks with glee. Hedwig the Pomeranian is making podcast history. Okay, I am picking a challenging one. Um, So this one is from Corinna, and her question is, I have a question about how best to work with my five-year-old Mustang, who is very stoic and also not very confident. It's hard to tell when he freezes emotionally because he's so stoic, but later hours or the next day, he gets upset about a very easy ask, such as backing up a few steps. I'm not sure how to help him deal with situations, training or life that make him uncomfortable. I hope this makes sense. Um, and that is a great question and it's a very tricky question. And I've dealt, I actually have a Mustang in my barn like this. Who's, I love him. His name is Dougal. Um, he's currently in training to be a, uh, veterans, uh, to be in a veterans program. Um, so horses like this can be very challenging 
not because they come out of their stall bucking and snorting and spooking, but because they don't really broadcast what's going on between their ears. And I've heard of more people being hurt by horses like this, not every stoic horse, but because sometimes when the thing happens that finally makes them react, it feels like it came out of nowhere because it's not this horse's MO to react. Um, and you'll see this a lot with mules. Uh, and I've seen this in a number of Mustangs because in this horse's mind, if I show any kind of weakness, then I'm in danger. You know, they just, they keep it all inside so they can look very quiet. You can sit there waving a tarp in front of them and they're, they look completely fine. And then one day it's raining and you get your rain slicker out to ride you know, you're on the trail and you pull out your rain slicker and they explode. And you're like, what happened? I've, I've desensitized you to the tarp 400 million times. So how do you read a horse like this and how do you help them? Um, so I have found that when I work for a horse like the, with a horse like this, I'm going to, um, especially when doing things like desensitizing, uh, instead of instead of just waving something and looking at him and saying, well, he's standing still. So he did it right. I'm actually going to look for him to react. That doesn't mean I want him to spook, but I'm going to desensitize him and I'm going to look at for any sign, whether he blinks his eyes or he takes a deep breath or he lowers his head a little bit. Um, and that's when I'm going to release on that horse because it's showing me that he's, taking in the information and he's actually relaxing to it instead of just standing still like a statue. Oftentimes with a horse like this, um, you know, if I'm talking about desensitizing, um, I will desensitize them until I find a change. And then I will actually ask them to move their feet a little bit. Like, Hey, could, could you step your hindquarters around just to make sure like you're still with me, right? You haven't gone on screensaver. They, and that's literally <laughs> what they're doing. They do that. Yeah, it's like little toasters flying across the screen. The screen, where that horse, his his defense, instead of I'm oh I don't like this, I'm going to run or I'm going to fight. Um, it's this freeze, or it's not even a freeze because they they look fine. They just turn off. They shut up. Is sh- shut off the you know shut up shop for the day, and they're gone. Um, so I'm going to try to do things with that horse that keeps him engaged. So if I notice that that's happening, I'll just gently ask them to move their feet. Uh, another thing I like to do with those horses is teach them head lowering as a way to calm down because the longer you work with teaching them to lower their head at first, they just do it because it's, you know, pressure, release of pressure. I've asked you to lower your head and you do it. And then I release pressure and they're just doing that condition response. But the longer you work on lowering their head, you will start to see releases. They are going to start blowing out air, licking and chewing, doing those things that show me, okay, you're here, you've processed what's just happened. Um, and so things like that, I'm anytime I ask my horse to do anything, a horse like that, I'm going to look for a release. And this is very hard and it's very subtle. Um, but if I can get them to actively participate in these calming behaviors, um, then I know that they're with me. 
Uh, there's other kinds of things that I've, I'm just now starting to kind of like explore with things like the Masterson method. And we were talking about Linda Tellington Jones at the last clinic, uh, things like, you know, sticking my finger in their mouth and getting them to actually lick and chew. Um, so if you can do those kinds of, I, I definitely recommend exploring those kinds of programs and teaching your horse how to have those releases. The other thing that um, I really like with these kinds of horses is positive reinforcement training and actually finding a clicker training program. And I know that's not for everyone, but so with my Mustang Dougal, for instance, he would, when I first got him, he would be quiet with me. And then with a stranger, specifically a man, which I've never had a horse, ex- I've never experienced this personally with a horse before, he would have these big reactions. So he would go from totally fine to, I don't know who you are. And that's when I would actually see him have this big reaction and react to things. Um, but I could sit there waving things around and asking him to do stuff. And he just, he would just shut down. He just wasn't computing. He would be so quiet all the time except for those rare moments. And uh, in particular with this horse, I could not get him to go forward for anything. I specifically the trot could not get him to trot. I would wave tarps. I would jump up and down doing jumping jacks. I would have the scariest flag I could, and he just wouldn't go. And I felt like with using pressure to try to get him to go forward, I felt like I was going to a space that I didn't want to go to where I was using way more pressure than I felt comfortable with. And I thought, what if I, uh, what if I use all this pressure and it still doesn't work? So I've just tormented you with all this pressure and I still didn't get the answer. So I actually, with that horse went completely back and said, let's introduce the positive reinforcement with the clicker and the food. And even with that, I would click and he would just kind of go, okay. And I would actually have to open his mouth and shove the tree in there, like take the tree and he'd go, okay. And he'd eat it, but I wouldn't see anything. There would be nothing on his face. And so I did this for weeks thinking, this is a waste of time. It's not going to work. Like, you don't care. And then all of a sudden, one day, this horse blossomed. He started looking at me when I'd approach his um, corral and nickering at me. And he'd be, like, excited to see me. And the the moment that actually made me want to cry, and I'm going to cry thinking about it now, is he came up to me in the pasture and trotted circles around me. Like, look what I can do. Do you see? Oh my and gosh. And this is a horse. Yeah. Like I still want to cry thinking about it. This was a horse that he was a statue until he wasn't until something really scared him, but he was a statue. He emoted nothing. And, and like I said, getting him to trot, like I felt like I was going to have to get fireworks um, and explode to make him go. And for him to like willingly come up to me and I wasn't asking, I was just walking through the pasture and he was like, look, look what I can do. And it made that horse not only like want to show me all the behaviors he learned, but I used that in the high stress situations. So, um, he was real nervous about the farrier for the first many, many trims. And so I went out there and clicked and treated and that kept him from going into shutdown mode and it kept him engaged. And what that taught that horse was that any new thing that I introduced to him, it was a game. There was a, there was a goal to it. 
And so it kept him turned on and not shut down. And it made him realize that, okay, even though this thing is really different and weird, like me crawling up on him for the first time, instead of him just turning off and going into that dangerous place that those stoic horses can go to where you're like, are you paying attention? Are you getting ready to explode? I don't know. I can't read you. It made him like look back at me and go, does this get the treat? Is this right? And he, I saw him mentally ask questions and then get excited when he got the, the correct answer. So I strongly encourage that kind of training for those horses, for any horse really. But it works extremely well with those real stoic, you know, statuesque horses that don't appear to have much of a personality, you will see a totally different horse come out of it when you do that kind of work with them. That's so interesting. One of the things I got out of the R plus training, I produced Shauna Koresh's Clicker Equine Clicker 101 podcast, uh, which is still available on network.com by the way. And my experience with it, I'm not good at it, but I do use it as part of my life with my horses is horses that I would used to refer to as not a good thinker. They don't think through problems. They just react. Or in the case of Dougal, they react internally and not externally, which is way worse, I think. It helps yeah. them unlock their ability to think or their motivation to think through a problem or their curiosity. I think you used to call it the um, the seeking, the seeking gene. Seeking emotion. The yes. seeking emotion. And that's a, what a great way to describe it. In that Dougal started to go, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? It can unlock that horse's desire to go, well, what about this? And that is such an important part of their existence, whether or not they have interactions with humans. Exactly. It's, it's, man, it's such a good way to go about things. You know, I have a lot of what I call cowboy skills, like I was just talking about with the lariat, um, which is stuff I've learned from natural horsemen and, and just really fantastic horsemen. And so I have a lot of those skills, whether it's getting a Mustang halter broke or a horse on the trailer, like we got to go to the vet, this horse is not well, I can get that horse on a trailer in 30 minutes. But there are some times where I run into a horse where my cowboy skills come to an end, where I know there's a better cowboy out there who could get this done using these skills and they could do it way better and with, you know, little fuss and resistance. But I know where my skills kind of stop. And I'm like, okay, if I try to do this with this horse, it's not going to work out well. Where That's where that clicker training, it always works. It, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more tedious and it's going to take a little longer, but any time where I'm like, I don't know, I got nothing. That's where I, I'm I the script. I'm like, let's bring in the clicker. And it always helps. Horse and Rider On Demand allows you to train smarter, not harder. Our training video collection featuring some of the industry's top Western professionals like Bud Lyon, Cody Crow, Ryan Rushing, and more can help you perfect your horsemanship and improve your performance in the arena. Get access to hundreds of videos and learn more about events like ranch horse versatility, reining, working cow horse, ranch riding, and more for just $14.99 a month. 
Watch anywhere, anytime. Horse and Rider On Demand can be streamed from any smart device. Visit ondemand.horseandrider.com to start your seven-day free trial. That's ondemand.horseandrider.com. Okay, so final question. I did not write down the name. I believe this is from Peggy. Uh, How do fellow competitors, general public, perceive an American Mustang competing at events like the Stock Horse Shows? I personally think most Mustangs are extremely versatile and definitely suitable for events like that and hope to see more in the future, maybe even myself with one of my own Mustangs. Um, So my experience has been 100% positive. They love seeing Mustangs. Um, you know, sometimes he he blends right in and he's not even perceived as a Mustang. Um, and a couple of times I've had people at the stock horse shows ask if he was a gunner, which is actually a very famous um, stock horse who has very similar markings to Remy. He's a famous reigning horse and he's got a lot of babies in the cow horse and quarter horse world. So I thought that was kind of a compliment. Um, but at these stock horse events, um, they love him. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone's cheering for him. Uh, even when we go in the cow classes and we we don't do very well, I still get tons of compliments. They're saying they, you know, this last show they said, "Wow, he's really improved." I love. I've loved watching him improve all year. So people love them, and I will often run into fellow Mustang people. Even if they're not showing their Mustang at the event, I always get a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, I started a Mustang 10 years ago or my assistant had a Mustang. They love talking about them. And so I encourage anyone who has a Mustang, get out there and show. Um, I've seen them in every single different event. Again, never had a negative experience ever. Um, They love to talk about them. They remember them. And they're always very welcoming. That's interesting because early on when Mustangs were, when they started encouraging people to take a Mustang and give it a life outside of a holding pen, I think there was a pretty significant stigma against them. But I get the feeling from people in all different disciplines, from trail horses to three-day eventers, that it's very much looked at as a uh, what's a, a diamond in the rough breed. I'm going to use the word breed, even though they're not technically a breed. I don't think that people go, "Oh, wow, that's so cool!" I've because especially if you write English, never met a Mustang before, and that's really cool. That it's the perception of them being toss out, toss outs or leftovers or oh, you took a Mustang. Wasn't that nice of you? that they have a legitimate place in the competitive disciplines as well as the non-competitive disciplines. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, there, there's so many talented Mustang trainers out there now. So now the Mustangs that you're running into in the public are very accomplished and trained. Um, So, you know, I think the more people that see him in these associations going and doing well, you know, like I said, Remy's a reserve world champion now. Um, yay. Um, and you know, they're, they're really seeing what they can do. And I always tell people whatever kind of horse you like, if you, 
you know, you want a real Spanishy um, animated horse, or you want something that's talented over jumps, or that has endurance, or like Remy is a very grumpy potato that likes to ride for short spurts and then he's done. Um, you can find a Mustang that matches, that fits the bill. Um, and that's the good thing about them. You know, you're right. I don't think they are officially a breed and they're so varied. You can find tall Mustangs, small Mustangs, hot Mustangs, cool Mustangs. Um, so they, uh, they, they're very versatile breed and they can do just about anything any other horse can do. There we go. So for folks who want to track you down, follow you on social media, hire you for a clinic, etc., where can they appropriately stalk you online? You can find me on Facebook, uh, Mary Kitts Miller Horsemanship, uh, or on my website, marykitzmiller.com. There we go. That's it for today, everybody. We're going to let Mary go because she's still recovering from sucking dust at the Stock Horse World Show for four days. And she will be back again next month. And we'll be back again tomorrow on Horses in the Morning with more fun. See you then. See ya.